Do keep uh, Genesis chapter 1 open and let me pray for us as we start. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that your words bring order and life and blessing to your creation. Father, thank you for the privilege that it is now to hear you speak to us through that word. We pray that as uh, we hear you speak, that you would point us to your Son, the Lord Jesus, who we thought about this morning, the Lord of all and our Saviour. We pray that we would see him and be more like him because of what we hear tonight. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, um, let, let me just say uh, again, it is, it's really, really great to be with you, to finally have arrived, to have landed in Chessington. As I said this morning, we're slowly beginning to find our feet and, and figure out life here. The, the boxes uh, are going down slowly um, and we're settling in nicely. And, and, and thank you for all of your uh, prayers, your, your encouragement, your food uh, over the last week or so as well. Uh, and if you've if you've ever moved, uh, like we've just done, to a new area, um, then you'll know that moving place involves meeting lots and lots of new people, doesn't it? It involves uh, saying hello to lots of different people and people who will ask you lots and lots of questions. Uh, questions about who you are, um, what football team you support, where you've come from, what you like to do in your spare time. All questions of identity. And it's not just if you've moved house, is it? We, we live in a culture today that is obsessed with questions of identity. People are desperate to figure out who they really are. And, and so what we do is we define ourselves. And then we redefine ourselves. And then we redefine ourselves again. Because we're desperate to work out what makes me, me? Identity is an important question as we meet new people. It's an important question in our culture. And it's, an, it's a question that is at the heart of what we're going to be looking at over the next few Sunday evenings this term. You see, identity is at the heart of the book of Genesis. Genesis is a book all about beginnings, about the beginning, the beginning of everything, the beginning of time and space, the beginning of the universe and this world, and the beginning of the human race. It's a book about beginnings, and so it is here, more than anywhere else, that we can begin to discover the answers to those questions of identity. However, it might not surprise you that the Bible doesn't start with a chapter all about you or me. No, no, the Bible begins with God. Genesis chapter 1 is all about God. We can see that simply by looking at the start and end of our passage this evening. So just look again at Genesis 1 verse 1. Well-known words, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And then look to the end of our passage, to 2 verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. God is the subject 
of this chapter. He's the one in focus. He's mentioned throughout it. It is God who creates. God who speaks. God who sees. God who separates. God who calls. God who makes. It is all about God. And so if we want to understand what it means to be human, if we want to understand what it means to live in this world, well then the author of Genesis says we need to first understand who God is. We need to listen to God as he reveals himself to us in his word and then allow that truth to shape the way that we think about ourselves and the world around us. So that's what we're going to do this evening. We're going to see three things. Three things about the God of this universe and how we should view ourselves in relation to him. And the first thing that we see is that God is the powerful creator. God is the powerful creator. Chapter 1, verse 1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As we sit here this evening, we do so as people who are part of and within creation. But right at the start, the Bible tells us there is a a being, a God, who stands outside of creation. In the beginning, there was God, and only God. And that means that God is utterly unique. He's in a class of his own. In other words, if you think about it, there really are only two categories of things in existence. There are uncreated things and created things. There is God and absolutely everything else. God is unique. He is the uncreated one. And he's also the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, now the phrase heavens and the earth, well, that's basically a shorthand way of saying everything. Everything that you can see, everything that you can touch or feel or smell, everything you can think of, everything that has ever existed has been created by God. The, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink sums this up well when he writes, God is dependent on nothing. He needs nothing. Rather, all that exists depends on him. He is the only source of all existence and life, of all light and love, the overflowing fountain of all good. God is the uncreated creator. And did you notice from chapter 1 how he creates? It's there throughout in verse 2. Verse 3, and God said. Verse 6, and God said. Verse 9, and God said. And it goes on. And the point is unmissable, isn't it? God creates simply by speaking. There is nothing, then God speaks, and then there is something. And so we mustn't come to Genesis 1 and and think of God creating the universe like me trying to build Ikea furniture in our new house. 
It's not that God kind of gets all the different parts that he needs and then struggles for hours as he tries to figure out how this bit goes with this bit and where this screw goes in order to make a billy bookcase. Now, he doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't get confused. He doesn't get tired. No, he just speaks and creation comes into existence. Which means nothing that he says and, and nothing that he intends ever fails to happen. His word is powerful. It is unstoppable. What is the result of God's powerful word? Look at verse 2. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. In verse 2 there, there is no light, no life, no, only darkness, only emptiness. But then in verses 3 through to 26, God speaks, and as he speaks, he brings order and life to his creation. Through his powerful word, God forms and then fills his world. Uh, we can see that forming and filling as we read through those days of creation. So on day one, God forms the framework of light and darkness. Uh, and then on day four, he fills that framework with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Or on day two, he, he forms the sky and the water. And then on day five, he fills that with birds and fish. At day three, he forms the earth and vegetation, and then he fills it with animals and then humanity. God brings order and life to his creation by forming and then filling it. And so whilst Genesis is not meant to be a scientific textbook full of intricate details about how the universe came to be, it does tell us that the universe is not random or chaotic. There is an order, a design, a pattern built into God's creation. And it's an order and a design that God repeatedly says is good. Verse 31, he says it's very good. And so can you see that the Bible opens with this unmissable truth. God is the powerful creator. He speaks and creation comes into existence. There's nothing he did not make, nothing he isn't responsible for, which means there is nothing he does not own. Which leads us to our second thing we see about God, and that is that he is the rightful ruler of his creation. Right from the very first verse, from verse 1, it's, it's not just clear that God is the creator, but he's also the ruler of his universe. He is the supreme authority. He is the king of kings. There is no one higher, no one better, no one stronger or greater than the one who made everything. And that was key for the original readers, the, the Israelites, as they came to read Genesis. You see, whether they were on the edge of the promised land, about to enter Canaan, or, or whether they were in exile in, in Babylon, the Israelites, you'll know if you've read the Old Testament, were, were often surrounded by other nations with other gods. Gods that seemed powerful. 
a God that seemed bigger and better than the God of the Bible. And so they would have faced the daily temptation to think, well, maybe these gods are worth a go. Maybe I can have a life where I have a little bit of Yahweh and a bit of Marduk or, or Baal. After all, these, these Babylonian gods, well, they seem pretty impressive, don't they? They seem pretty useful. After all, we're in exile there, not the other way round. But Genesis 1 says no. No, don't be fooled. The God of the Bible, the God who created the heavens and the earth, has no rival. And that isn't just something that ancient Israel needed to hear, is it? That we might not bow down to Baal this evening, but we do face the daily temptation to worship career, or success, or popularity, or our family, or education. We know it's easy to look at our neighbours and think, well, they seem happy. They seem to have a pretty nice life. Or maybe I just need to get a bit more of what they've got and a little bit less of the church stuff. Then my life will be better. Then things will go okay. But Genesis 1 says, no. No, no, don't, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled into thinking that created things should ever be worshipped instead of the one who made them, instead of the creator. God alone is ruler of this world, and so he alone is worthy of our worship. God is the supreme ruler of his world, and his rule is made even more explicit in his creation of humanity. So just look at chapter 1, verse 26. 1 verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. By the time we get to verse 26, mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. And yet, even in the design of humanity, we are reminded that God is the supreme authority. He is the king. After all, man is made in God's image. Not, as my RE teacher used to tell me, the other way around. God is the ultimate ruler of his creation and he makes man in his image to reflect that rule. It's there in verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Why? So that they may rule. It's repeated in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Mankind is to rule. And in doing so, they reflect the ultimate rule of God, of the creator. And so again, do you see that there is an order to God's world? There's a hierarchy built into creation. God is at the top. He is the king, the Lord. And then there is man underneath him, created to bear his image, to rule under him. 
and then the rest of creation below that. Are we going to see in a few weeks' time what happens when humans try to change that order, when they, when they try to reverse it? But the key thing here is that we are made to represent the king, not be the king in this world. And so if we want to understand what it means to be human, or what it means to live in this world rightly, then we need to understand our place in this order, in this hierarchy of creation. And that is key when it comes to those big questions of identity. As we said at the start, we, we live in a culture that is obsessed with defining itself. A culture that says, whatever you want to be, or whatever you say you are, that is what you are. And no one really can disagree with you. No one has the right to tell you you're wrong. But Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says something very different, doesn't it? It says that our identity is not fluid. It's not something that we give to ourselves and, and can therefore change from one day to the next. No, our identity, who we are as humans, is given to us. By our creator. We don't define ourselves. God does. And whilst that might not be a very popular thing in today's culture. We need to see how wonderful that truth really is. The fact that our identity is something given to us by God. Means as Rachel has already prayed this evening that we have dignity and value as human beings. Not because of what other people say about us, not because of what we say about ourselves, but because we have been made in God's image, and so we are valuable. The only reason that we can have something like human rights is not because we say, well, I'm a person and I deserve that, or I'm an individual, not because of anything we say about ourselves. No, our rights come from what God says about us, that we are made in his image. And that is true for you. It is true for me. It is true for every single person you will ever meet. Which means there should be no racism in God's world. There should be no elitism or sexism. There should be no euthanasia or abortion because every human life is valuable. And it also isn't something that, that Christians should be embarrassed to talk about. In a world that is thoroughly confused about human value and dignity and identity, Genesis 1 and 2 speak of a God who generously gives us those things. And that brings us to the last thing we're going to see this evening. And that is that God is a generous giver. God is a generous giver. In, verses, in verse 27, God makes man in his image. And then in verse 28 and 29, he, he places them in his new perfect creation. And he says, enjoy, enjoy, go, cultivate, produce, fill, eat, enjoy the goodness of my world. God freely gives to humanity. 
He's not coerced or persuaded. He doesn't create from some deep sense of need or loneliness within himself. No, he freely creates. And in verse 28, he freely blesses out of his own abundant goodness and generosity. And that generosity culminates in chapter 2, verse 2. Just look there with me. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Now this rest isn't, isn't God just kind of putting his feet up, uh, taking his, his eye off the ball. It's not that God creates the world and then sort of sets it going and leaves it alone. No, this is talking about God resting as he enjoys the completion of his very good creation. Because in the end, this is what God created the universe for. He created it for rest. He created it so that we could enjoy a perfect, joyful relationship with himself in his good world. And so if you're a human being here this evening, this is what you have been made for. You have been made to know God and to enjoy his blessing. You've been made for rest. But the thing is, that isn't our experience, is it? We don't live in a world at rest. We don't live in a world that enjoys the the blessing of a right relationship with God and with other people. No. No, no, we we live in a world full of chaos and confusion. Chaos as we experience family breakdown or, or bullying, harassment, terrorism, war. And confusion as people try to work out who they really are what they're really here for, what their purpose in this world is, how to be happy, how to be content, confusion. And all that's because we, rather than living in a world at rest, we live in a world of rebellion. We're going to see when we get to chapter 3 what that rebellion looks like in detail. There we'll see that that rather than humbly acknowledging the power and majesty of God, we want power and control for ourselves. Rather than submitting to the rule of the one who made us, we want autonomy, we want to be the king, not God. And so rather than enjoy the rest that we were made for, we experience conflict and confusion and chaos. That's the state of the world that we live in. That's the the state of every human heart. And it's into that rebellion, into that confusion and chaos, that God gives his most generous gift of all. Into a world that has rejected and rebelled against its creator, God gives his son, Jesus Christ, So just as we come towards the end, just turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 1, verse 1. John 1, verse 1. 
It's on the screen, hopefully, um, if you haven't got it in front of you. John 1 verse 1 says, this will sound familiar, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then skip down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just as God's word brought light and life to darkness and chaos in Genesis 1, so Jesus, the word of God, came to bring light and life to the chaos of our broken and sinful world. And as you read through the Gospels, as you read through John, you see that Jesus has complete power. As he calms the storm, as he heals the sick, as he raises the dead, all we see it is clear that Jesus is the powerful creator. More than that, we see that Jesus has complete authority. Authority to speak the words of God, to reveal his kingdom, and to represent his Father. We saw that in Romans 1 this morning, didn't we? Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the rightful ruler. And then in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus, the powerful creator, the rightful ruler, says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus, the word made flesh, steps into a broken and sinful world and offers us rest. He offers us a restored relationship with the God who made us. How does he do this? How does Jesus bring rest? Well, he does it by using all of his power, all of his authority, not for himself, but to die and then rise again. You see, Jesus, the generous God, gives his life to bear the punishment for our rebellion. He gives his life so we can be restored, remade, recreated into the people God intended us to be. People who know him and enjoy his blessing. And so if you want to know what it means to be truly human this evening to live the life that you were made for, then Genesis 1 and Romans 1 says we must come to Jesus. Only in Jesus do we find true forgiveness for our rebellion. Not only in Jesus do we find our true identity and purpose as people of the King. And only in Jesus do we find the true rest that all people long for. The rest of enjoying that restored relationship with the God who made us and loves us. Now and for all eternity. We have a powerful creator 
who speaks the universe into existence. We have a mighty ruling God who has no rival. And we have a wonderfully generous God who not only creates, but sends his son for us, even though we've rebelled against him. How do we respond to a God like that? Well, we praise him, don't we? Which is what we're going to do now. I'm going to pray, uh, and then we're going to sing praise to our God. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, as we read these words in Genesis 1, and as we consider and think about your majesty and power and authority in creation, it makes us feel so small. Father, we praise you for the wonder of your creation. We are astounded, Father, that you would do all this. And Father, we are more astounded, more amazed at the fact that you would send your son for us. People who have taken your creation, ruined and rejected you, but Father, that you still love us and that you sent Jesus for us. Father, please help us to come to him to see who we truly are. We pray that we would find our identity in the Lord Jesus this evening and tomorrow morning as we get up and go about our day. And we pray that, that we would bring glory to his name through our lives. Amen.